Hello. Hi, and welcome back to Spelling <laughs> Storytime, the podcast where we do a lot of research so you don't have to. So fun. Yes, exactly. Allison, I am very excited to announce to the podcast that I became a monthly donor to Wikipedia <laughs> because it felt only appropriate. That's fair. That's fair. They do a lot, don't they? They do. They do. They do a lot for me specifically. So we are we are deep into uh, the the research game now. I got an email from their CEO saying thank you. Oh. So we are we are on it. But I am so excited for this week. But before we get started, Allison, how has your week been? Pretty uneventful, but I did get one of those like birth control rod things in my arms. Can you see the bruise? No, you're like your screen's fuzzy. I just can see the box. I'll send you a picture of it later, but it, there's a pretty gnarly bruise on it. Okay. And I got it for my endometriosis. So I hope that it helps. Um, yeah, but that's kind of the most exciting thing happening on my end. What about you, Jess? How's your week been? You know, it's been all right. Um, I'm trying to think of anything exciting that I've done in the last week. I don't know. I have been playing a lot of video games lately. So I beat that cat game that we were talking about last week. But I started playing this game with Brendan that apparently is very much like a 19 year old straight boy game but i love it it's called fall guys <laughs> fall guys the best way i could describe it is it's kind of like mario party where you're getting through like basically an obstacle course but you play like it's online so you like fall into a room or like a race course or whatever it looks like Mario, kind of, hmm. is the best way to describe it. And then you have to, like, run through this obstacle course and, like, every map is, like, kind of different. You have, like, a different objective. And you play, like, it's online. So you're playing with, like, 60 strangers and then there's, like, four rounds and there's an elimination at the end of every round if you don't, like, meet the objective. And so, like, your goal is to be in the final round and um, the characters are really funny looking and it's just, it's so fun. And it's free. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> so clearly yeah. I'm doing really well, but it's really fun. Allison, if you want to play, let me know. <laughs> oh my god, I would be so down. That sounds great. So I, I would fun. love to do that with you. Jess, this week we are talking about Amazing Discoveries. Yes. And I am very excited to share this with you. I want... Where's my phone? I'm going to send you just a quick picture. Okay. Uh, a quick picture of what the tabs on the top of my screen look like. I cannot wait. Oh my god. Okay, for those of you at home, Allison has, let's see, let me count. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. Allison has 24 tabs open. <laughs> Yes, and I will. I did not use all of them as sources, so I won't be listing twenty four sources. But anyway, I just wanted to show you my tabs. They're actually kind of stressing me out. I'm gonna like pull this into a new tab because I don't want to deal with this. Okay. <clears throat> oh, much better. Okay. So I am going first. Yes. And I had a really hard time deciding what to do because. As some of you may or may not know, I was almost 
an archaeology major. I was an archaeology major for like two years and I traded to cultural anthropology. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very interested in archaeology and like discoveries of like, you know, ancient civilizations. Love that. And so I kind of went down that road of, you know, amazing discoveries. And there are so many amazing discoveries. And I did not know which one to talk about. I was really interested in this underground, uh, sorry, underwater city in Egypt. But mm-hmm. that is still just barely being excavated. So there's not a ton of information on that, but it's still really cool. And so I decided to go with something that had a bit more information about it. And this was so much bigger than I imagined. Like this story, I (laughs) was thought I was researching one thing and then I got like 10 other things that like came from this discovery. And holy shit. If I start talking about things that, you or any normal person would simply not be interested in. I need you to reel me in. Just like reel, reel me in. Yeah. Don't, don't let me, <laughs> ding, ding, ding. don't let me go down these rabbit holes that nobody else cares about. Okay. I, th- I thought I did a pretty good job at like, but I don't, I'm not about to read you like my college essay. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. Okay. Oh, first of all, I'm drinking a Moscow mule today. Jess, what are you drinking? I am drinking rosé. There's half a bottle of wine in front of me i plan to drink most of it during this this time so love it okay all right so with that being said jess the amazing discovery i'm going to talk about today is the terracotta warriors in china oh my gosh and the tomb of china's first emperor (gasps) that's so fucking cool they are directly related and i had no idea about this tomb until I started researching this. And let me tell you. Wow. Okay. So again, reel me in on tangents. Okay. I'm going to do my best. So also pronunciation. I also did my best. I really tried hard on this. Okay. Oh, I'm so excited. This is so cool. Okay. So, (laughs) so my sources for this were inside the secret tomb of Emperor Xin by Scott Dutfield TravelChinaGuide.com. I got most of my info on that website. It was absolutely insane. Um, M.VisitOurChina.com and ChinaHighlights.com. Our story takes place in Ziyang Village, about 25 miles east of the Xi'an city in central China. In March of 1974, a severe drought threatened the lives of those living in this village. A group of nine farmers got together to dig a well in a desperate attempt to find water. On, like, the third or fourth day of digging... At a depth of like 15-ish feet, one of the farmers, a young man named Ying Zhufa, struck something hard with his hoe. He called up to his companions. Don't laugh at hoe. I see you laughing. I, I see you fucking laughing. <laughs> it's okay. I laugh too. Um, Don't look at me. <laughs> anyway, he struck something hard with his hoe. He calls up to his companions saying that he thinks he found a pot made by their ancestors long ago because their ancestors used to, like, make pots in that area. So, it, like, you know, made sense to them. And they were hoping to use the pot as a container. So he, like, carefully dug around it only to reveal that it wasn't a pot. It was the head of a statue. Little did he know that just by some freak chance, him and his companions stumbled upon one of eight thousand terracotta warriors that had been buried and hidden from the world for over two thousand years he along with his companions had unearthed the eighth wonder of the world oh 
Not only would this discovery answer centuries-old questions, it would finally lead scientists to the final resting place of Xin Shi Huang, the first emperor of unified China. Since his death in 210 BC, which, by the way, was 2,231 years ago, okay, since his death that long ago, people had been searching and searching for his gravesite, but nobody could find it. And scientists could not figure out why. And it would have remained unnoticed if not for these farmers digging this well and stumbling upon the terracotta warriors. And I say unnoticed because it was hiding in plain sight this whole time. In this village, there was a hill overgrown and covered in vegetation that the residents thought absolutely nothing of. But it turns out that it was the mausoleum or the burial mound of Xin Shi Huang and the terracotta warriors were buried in front of it to accompany him to the afterlife. So there was just this hill in the <laughs> village that they were all just living around, but it was like the first emperor of China's burial mound and they had no clue. And and the mausoleum extends deep underground and in total is bigger than the Great Pyramid of Giza. What the fuck? Yes. 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 Right? Like, I passed out when I read that. Because, like, so it's, like, basically on the top, it's, like, one big pyramid like this. And then yeah. on the bottom, it's just, like, an inverted pyramid. That's crazy. Okay. Can I ask some architectural questions? Yes, please. Okay. So, a mausoleum is technically above ground. Yes. So, you're telling me. I'm sure you're going to get into this, so I, my apologies and cut this no, out. No, no, go ahead. ahead. Was... Were the terracotta warriors buried on purpose? Yes. They were buried on purpose. So they were buried actually about a mile away from his mausoleum. And they were buried to accompany him to the afterlife. So when he was buried, they were buried. Okay. But they existed before he died. Oh, girl. Oh, girl. They sure did. Let me tell you about it. Okay. So before I dig too deep into the warriors themselves... Fuck off. <laughs> oh, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, I'll be here all night. So I want to tell you about this emperor, who is one of the most extra men that has ever lived. He was born in 259 BC to the king of the Qin state. And at the age of 13, he took his father's place on the throne after his father died. So he was extremely ambitious from a young age and vowed to unify China. So before him, China was made up of several states and tribes. It wasn't one big country. Mm -hmm. and each state and tribe had their own ruler but like nobody ruled over all of them so in just 10 years he conquered them all thus quote-unquote unifying the country and he also ended like a centuries-old war between all the tribes by unifying them okay. and so he is considered a great emperor for like certain things and that's one of them so Mm -hmm. He also imposed standardized laws, unit units of measurement, a new currency that was much easier to use, and even ordered, this is something I would do, even ordered a standard length of the axle on wagons so the wheels all fit in the same rut on the road. <laughs> like, that's some OCD shit. I just know he was, like, grumpy, like, his face looking out the wagon window, like, this has fucking got to go. So, now there's all just one unified rut, so thank you, um, Shinchi Huang, for that. All right, but some of the laws were very harsh, and citizens started resenting him. So, for example, he commanded that all Confucian books be burned, and when scholars started criticizing him for that, he had all 460 scholars buried alive. Hot. <laughs> As one does, sure. So, 
he had absolutely no problem killing people who disagreed with him, and he had no problem working people to death. And we'll get into that in a second, but fun fact, he was, like, the least humble person on the planet, and he gave himself the name Xin Shi Huang because it literally means first emperor. So after he unified the country, it wasn't quite as secure as he wanted. <laughs> so after our boy Xin Shi Huang unified the country, <laughs> it wasn't quite as secure as he wanted. And again, this was, like, a really, really, really long time ago. Yeah. And so... This whole part cracked me up. The fucking Huns were on the north border and were kind of getting all riled up. And they were, like, really skilled in combat. They were really aggressive and posed, like, a great threat to the security of his empire. So, therefore, he was, like, you know, the OG Donald Trump and was, like, build a wall. Build a wall. And he built this big old wall along the north border to defend against the Huns. I don't know if you can know where I'm going with this. He connected and repaired the separate walls built by the former states before him, thus forming a long, connective, defensive wall, which we know today as the Great Wall of China. Wait. Okay. So you're telling me... So there were already walls, like, stationed up, and he just said, yo, connect the dots? <laughs> Is that what I'm understanding right now? Um, basically, yeah. So, because remember how, like, China had, like, separate unified states yeah. before him, and he was the one that basically, like, took control yeah. of them? They had already, so those states had, like, built up some walls before along that border, but there was never, like, one big wall. And so he connected, yeah, so he, like, rebuilt those walls, like, made them sturdier and connected them into, like, one massive wall. So, yeah, he connected the dots basically oh my which is something i didn't know i had no idea that it was built in pieces i had no clue that mm -hmm. is so interesting oh my god so interesting and according to historical records the emperor recruited nearly one million people to construct the great wall which counted for one twentieth of the total population in the country 100 million people one million people sorry Oh, <laughs> one million people, but it's still counted for one twentieth of the total population in the country. That is a third of the population of Utah. Utah has three million people in it. Damn. That is one third. That is just insane. Anyway. Yeah. The fact that it was good for him, I guess, um, creating jobs in that economy. <laughs> I don't think they were getting paid. <laughs> um, <laughs> fuck me. Yeah. No. In fact, like I didn't put this in here because it was too much info, but he him being in power and he had he had so many construction projects going on that the taxes were fucking insane mm, and mm -hmm. anyway so it was a it was a big problem so yeah i don't think there are paid employees i i bet it's the other way around um didn't have a benefit package yeah nope no dental with that one Okay, so in addition to the great, the fucking Great Wall of China, he also built this massive canal that still plays an important role in both flood control and irrigation to this day. And this was all done over 2,000 years ago. Okay, that is just, here's, this is what's crazy to me. And I know that it's, like, not just him, that, like, obviously this, like, one million people and he probably, like, had civil engineer advisors whether they were called that or not i don't know but like yeah he did. it is crazy to me that one person's coordination like actively affects infrastructure like so heavily like he basically like mapped out the country of china 
mm-hmm. and like how it functions like that is like the great wall of china like all of that like all like that is just insane because like it's the the like axle measurement mm-hmm. that they have in rome and like this guy's just basically like the chinese version of that where like the axle width on a chariot in rome has affected so much of how like the united states and like other like western countries are built and this guy just was like y'all mind if i just like civil engineer the hell out of china and like now they're forced to use this for the next 2000 plus years and the fact that it still works that is insane mm-hmm. one person's effect yeah no he's he's really getting it done um as like terrible of a person as he was and i can say that confidently like he he got it done and i think he got so much done because of his just general lack of care for human life um to put it bluntly but yeah so in addition to being just a real go-getter in all things construction he was also a little eccentric in his beliefs so emperor shin shi huang was fucking terrified of dying of you know, the concept of death in general, you know, a little bit fair, but he, he took it to a different level. He was worried he wouldn't be able to enjoy this, like, lavish lifestyle and immeasurable power he had in this lifetime in the afterlife. So, Jess, I ask you, if you're terrified of dying, what's the first thing you're going to do? Um, probably try to figure out how to not die. That is correct, Just Ding, ding, ding. You are going to spearhead a quest for immortality. So, <laughs> our homeboy, the first emperor, sent out a real Dungeons and Dragons quest with, like, fucking warlocks and adventurers to go find an elixir to help him live forever. Like, full on. <laughs> it just cracked me up. I was like, this can't be real. Like, he was sending boatloads of people by the thousands these like mysterious islands and having them like excavate caves and mines and sometimes they would never come back and then he'd send more people to find them and anyway but eventually like, a few elixirs did get back to him and one such elixir was mercury and this was what likely killed him at the age of 49 Mercury will have more to do with this story in the future, so put a little pin in that. So he was basically, like, the Mad Hatter. Yeah. He was, like, like isn't that the whole thing with the Mad Hatter is he's, like, insane because hatters use mercury to, like, or cure their hats? Maybe. I, I've heard that theory, but I don't know exactly what substance it was, but that makes sense. Mercury just, you know, whether it's in retrograde or whether it's the element, just don't fuck with it. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. Enough about the first dungeon master of China. We are going to move on to the terracotta warriors and the mausoleum. But real fast, just for um, my confidence, can you can you spell mausoleum for me? M A U. I I see you clicking. Stop typing. You're cheating. M A U S O L E U M. Well, I have it spelled, like, 14 different ways in this whole thing because, like, I just could not for the life of me figure it out, and I don't think I'll ever know. So, I guess, well done. You, the English major, did have to cheat to figure it out, too. So, Listen, it is a Greek origin word, okay? It's not good. Latin-based words are hard. they, They are difficult, and there's just a lot of unnecessary 
you know, word, letters in that that don't need to be there. All right. So Homeboy yes. took the throne at the age of 13, right? And at that age, he still had a, a really big fear of death. It was lifelong. Very mm-hmm. soon after ascending the throne... He ordered for the construction of the terracotta army and his mausoleum, his burial mound, to be done in great secrecy. It took over 700,000 workers and over 38 years to complete both of these projects. 38 years? 38 years. So he started the construction when he was 13 and he died when he was 49. And I can't do that math in my head. Uh, so 30, I'm on it. if he was 13, 49, that's third, that's 33 years mm, or just, excuse me, 36. Wait, wait. I haven't had to do math since I was 18. One second. Okay. Wait. So 49, 13 or excuse me. Yeah. 36. 36 I was right. 36. Yeah. So. <laughs> that was a disaster. That really felt bad. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> that was embarrassing. <laughs> that should not have been that difficult. Okay. Um so basically the entirety of his existence as emperor from the age of 13 to 49, he had the these big enormous projects underway with over 700,000 people working on them. Okay. So the Terracotta Army is located about a mile east from the Barrel Mound, and it's actually likely facing east because that's the direction towards, like, the states that he conquered. So maybe he's just, like, protecting himself from them? I'm not sure. Interesting. And so he believed there was an afterlife, and it was very customary for rulers at the time to bury their servants and warriors alive with them when they died so that they could accompany said ruler to the afterlife. Seems unfair, but okay. Um, Holy and what shit. is... <laughs> I know, it's a lot. It's a lot. Talk so... about making your own problems someone else's problem. <laughs> oh my god. I know. It makes me feel a lot better about myself. Like, the times that I, like, mildly inconvenience other people or, like, act a little bit selfishly, I'm like... At least I didn't kill you and bury you with me. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> uh, maybe that's why. Maybe that's why I haven't been on a date in a year. It probably is. All right. So, la 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 la. But his servants after life. Okay. So okay. Like I just said, it was customary that emperors or rulers would bury their servants or warriors with them, and after they died, so that they could come with them to the afterlife. And what is seemingly an ironic act of mercy, Emperor Xin Shi Huang ordered for the terracotta army to be constructed and buried with him in place of living people. But I don't know if I believe that's, like, his only reason for that, because, like, he killed way more people building the terracotta army and his mausoleum than it would have been if he just killed people to bury. Like, it's just... It seems a little backwards, but interesting i don't know maybe he wanted it to look like fucking badass when it was excavated other than just like oh look here's like another mass burial pit like damn like look at these terracotta warriors like maybe he just wanted it to be something that was undying yeah i don't know seems like something he'd do i'm just channeling my inner tyrant um so the warriors are made of terracotta which is just fancy name for clay basically they yeah. stand at an average of six feet tall, which is a lot taller than people in those times. 
And more impressively, every single one of them looks completely different. Face scanning technology has been used in recent years to try and find matches, but every single one of the 8,000 warriors remains entirely unique. From the shape of the jaw to the tilt of the eyes, from the mustache to the lips, every single soldier is their own person, and they all even have their own facial expressions. Like, some look sad, others look happy, some look angry, some look stoic. Like, they all look entirely different. And I'm going to send you a picture right now of kind of of one that I thought was, like, really good to show. Okay, look at what I just sent you. I think it shows the differences in... We'll post all of this on our Instagram, too, so you guys can, like, yeah. follow along with us right now. If you go to our Instagram, you can, like, look at the photos that oh I'm sending us. Okay, so, yeah. And... Archaeologists and scientists found that molds were used to create the arms, legs, and heads of the shoulders to speed up productivity, but the torsos and faces were created entirely by hand. So the faces were carefully carved and molded, again, by hand, to be each unique individual. You can even tell the age, the rank, and the nationality of the warriors from their clothing, headwear, and hairstyle. And let me send you another picture here that shows the hairstyles it is insane and again if you're not looking at our instagram i urge you to oh my gosh like you can see the detail like one's braided one's like also yeah i want them to teach me how to do a side bun or like a top knot because i can't i can't do it it doesn't look good well to me. and like the the details of like the ties and stuff mm-hmm. like um and, like, all the different, like, headwear. That's so cool. Oh, my gosh. And you can even see the ears. Like, the differences in the ears. Yeah. Like, it's insane. It's so detailed. And it's not just the warriors that were crafted and buried along with the emperor. Okay? This is another thing I didn't know. <laughs> this is insane, Jess. There were also 140 wooden chariots, 600 clay horses... And more than 100,000 real bronze weapons have been discovered with the Terracotta Warriors. The weapons are mainly crossbows, swords, spears, arrows, and dagger axes, all extremely well-preserved, like no rust. The swords even glitter in the sun to this day. And they also are still sharp. That is insane. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Two bronze chariots, each being pulled by four bronze horses, have also been unearthed around his mausoleum. So those weren't found with the terracotta warriors. They were unearthed in other spots around the mausoleum. And I'll get to that in a second. So this is way bigger than we ever thought. So, okay. And this is something I I debated whether to put this in here or not, but I decided to because I just thought it was so interesting. So let me know if I should cut it out. Um, Okay. Based on the posture, clothing, and the position of the warriors archaeologists have determined that there are five main types of soldiers there there are infantry warriors which is most of them cavalry warriors each of which stands in front of their own horse chariot warriors all of which can be ranked based on the size of their chariot and what they are wearing kneeling archers and standing archers so part of the reason why the terracotta warriors like the army was so significant to history is it shows exactly what like war formations or army formations would have looked like back then so i'll get again i'll get into that a little bit more i keep getting ahead of myself i'm too excited but (laughs) isn't that so cool like yeah they they, it's like a glimpse into 
what a formation would have looked like 200,000 years ago. Ah! No, wait. 2,200 years ago. Sorry. I'm like, okay, okay. Reel it in. Get it together. Get a grab. (laughs) Don't you guys just love when Allison gets excited about things? It's so fun. It's so fun. Okay. I just love how much, like, how many new things I learned that I didn't need. Okay. All right. Allison, shut up. Okay. So one thing, actually, before I get into that, I'm going to find another picture to send to you. I have, like, just the Google images pulled up, and it is crazy. Like, I'm looking at the looking at the warriors, like, on horses, and, like, all of the, like, the excavation site is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, all because one guy dug a well, a well. Yeah, and I honestly, like, they probably would have found it sooner or later because technology has been invented that can, like, they've used it in the Amazon. Like, basically, lasers are shot down into the trees and foliage that can cut through all that and show, like, pyramids that have been covered with trees and foliage. So I assume it would have been discovered in decades to follow by using that technology on this mound. But I like the way it was discovered way more. The fact that the warriors are the ones that led them to the mausoleum. It's so much cooler. Okay. Okay, so one thing that many people don't know, myself included, is that the terracotta army was once insanely colorful. (gasps) Each statue was hand-painted to depict colorful uniforms and military rank. So, for example, know that, mm-hmm, and I have a picture I'm about to send you to. Okay, so for example, several kneeling archers found in Pit Two. There are three main pits they excavated. So this is in Pit Two. Have traces of their old colors. They used to have black hair, pink faces, bright red headbands, powdery green coat armors, and sky blue and pink leg guards. Okay, and this is what I'm sending you now. Oh. <gasps> So that is a picture of what they probably would have looked like back then. Okay, and I also didn't incorporate this, but I'm going to talk about it now. There's this, like, purple color that is painted on some of the warriors. And it is a color that doesn't exist anywhere else. They call it Chinese purple. It was basically invented by alchemists on accident while they were looking for an elixir of life for the emperor. (gasps) And they were like, we just created this badass. Like, the only other thing it can be, can be for, uh, compared to is uh, Egyptian blue, which was also, like, chemically created by Egyptians. So Chinese purple, there is no other shade like it. And <clears throat> anyway, I can't get too much into it, but, it, like, okay, okay, shut up. So it's just, isn't that interesting? Is that, like, there was... That's so fascinating. A unique shade of purple that doesn't exist anywhere else. It was invented millennium ago. Okay. Oh my gosh. Okay. So when unearthing new statues, the colors are still visible and bright because they were preserved in the soil for all those thousands of years. But due to the oxidized oxidized I'm getting too excited. Okay. But due to the oxidization of the statues once they are exposed, the color can disappear in a matter of minutes. So while there are eight thousand warriors on display for the world to see, there are also many more to be discovered. Archaeologists have halted new excavations until a method to better preserve the color in the field is invented. So the true number of warriors is not known still, which is crazy because you think it would stop at 8,000, but like they know of other pits. And there have actually recently, in recent years, there have just been like 200 more warriors discovered. I don't know if they excavated them or not, but like they know that there are more. They just want to make sure that they can save the color this time. So... 
who knows how big it actually is. Holy shit. I'm curious. I, w- I wonder if, like, down the road, when we when they do find a way to excavate them while preserving them, if, like, what am I trying to say? I wonder if, like, the number will be significant. Like, once they figure out what that number is, I'm really curious to know what, like, the final... Because, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, like, a lot of shit with numbers and, like, numerology and stuff, particularly, like, in burial sites. And I'm so mm-hmm. curious to see what the magic number was. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. Wow, I I haven't thought about that. I just assumed that they probably stopped making them when he died. <laughs> they were like, "Fuck this." So not incorrect. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, I I would, I do wonder maybe if there is a significance to the number of them that there actually are. That's really interesting. So. Mm-hmm. The Terracotta Army gives historians um, insight into uh, ancient military science, including battle formations, clothing, weapons, and technology. And it also proves that the ancient Chinese sculpting techniques were as well developed as ancient Greece and Rome, which is a really big deal because they had they were on another level. And mm-hmm. this discovery proves that China was also up there with them. But Ancient Greece and Rome didn't bury all their shit under the ground for 2,000 years, which is so cool. I just wonder how many things are buried that we just don't know about. Okay. So around the Emperor's Mausoleum, there are other excavated pits to talk about. So um, I'm going to send you a picture now. Yes. Okay. So with that, you can kind of see how vast it all actually was because I didn't really understand and I still don't fully comprehend like the significance of all of this. And so they are all these like numbered uh, pits that they found. So like there's um, punishing convicts, there's builder's graveyard. There are like a pit full of mutilated skeletons. Many buried in these pits met a gruesome and violent death. There is a big numerous pits filled with like armor pottery and bronze like a bunch of statues and they also found a pit of 13 acrobat statues and a pit with eight civil figures which are basically just like these high-ranking politicians and we're again we're still discovering it so the terracotta army wasn't the only thing excavated around this mausoleum which in and of itself it almost looks like a little city like there's a big wall around it and all that and anyway just insane I, like, can't even comprehend this. Like, I'm looking at this image, and we'll post this on our Instagram so you guys can look at it with us, but, like, the vast size of this thing is just the most narcissistic thing I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, there is something titled the Sacrificial Offerings Office. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> come on, man. You really need offices when you're dead? <laughs> mm. Hmm. And then other offices and then secondary palaces. And so one thing I couldn't figure out is if people actually like lived here or if this was all part of like the burial thing. Like I, I don't know if this was actually like a tiny city or something or if, or if it was, I, I, I honestly could not find the answer to that. There's just so much information. Yeah. And it also shows how tall the mausoleum used to be and where mm-hmm. it is at now just be based off of, like erosion so it's lost almost half of its height yeah if that can tell you anything well it's just enormous but i'll get to that in a little bit anyhow so again it took 38 years to do all of that 38 and so much of it is still a mystery 
And with that being said, let's talk about his burial mausoleum. I just can't get over how it could have remained hidden for over two millennium. Yeah. 2,000 years. And like I said earlier, the construction of the Terracotta Army and Emperor Shinshi Huang's mausoleum were done in great secrecy. If anyone, anyone were to narc on its location, them and everyone they loved or associated with would be killed. And to further solidify the secrecy of it all, all the people who worked on the mausoleum were sealed inside with the emperor's body to die. So, again, this man really just was like, how narcissistic can I be in death? Mm-hmm. And he really surpassed expectations, I think. So, basically, one way or another, all 700,000 people he tasked with building his terracotta army and burial mound were dead once it was completed. That is insane. So, he murdered a ton of people to make sure that this was... Like, I can't imagine being one of those workers. Like, you just finished the mausoleum and then the gates shut you and everybody else in. And you had no... You have no idea, like, what's happening. Anyway, uh, it's just horrible. Um, so, he wanted to be absolutely certain that nobody would find it. And if they did, they wouldn't be able to get inside to rob the tomb. Yeah. Um, it is also likely that the few written records of the construction were destroyed in fires and peasant uprisings in the years following the emperor's death. And I read somewhere that the emperor halved China's population. This probably isn't true. There was one source that was kind of from out of nowhere. But I still thought it was interesting, so I'm going to say it anyway. His wars, oppression, and all of his construction projects brought a shit ton of misery and even more death on a massive scale. And... China had in total about 40 million people in 230 BC, but at the end of the Xin Empire, there were only an estimated 18 million people left in the region. I don't know how they'd measure that. Like, I don't know how this person got to that information. That's part of the reason why I'm like, I don't know if this is actually true, but I do know for a fact that he did decrease the population in china like fairly significantly because of his blatant disregard for other human life oh my gosh so whether it was like he halved it the population of china or he just significantly decreased the population of china either way he killed so many people that it was like it's noticeable to scientists today oh my god yeah feels real bad so (laughs) yeah many scholars are quite conflicted as to how they should feel about him because you know he is successful unifying china and implementing these standardized laws and currency and so for that he's known as like a really great emperor because he did what an emperor is supposed to do but he was also a tyrant who killed millions of people so it's like it's hard to say well and it's like he may have had the idea but like he he wasn't the one that implemented it it was the millions of people that he killed building the things that like implemented it you know what i mean like it may have been his idea but it was on the backs of like millions of dead people yeah it was so okay so the mausoleum and by the way before researching the terracotta warriors i had no idea that there was also a mausoleum i thought that i was just looking into the statues and Mm -hmm. so let me tell you what we know today just from scientific research done recently alone When viewed from above, the burial mound looks like a four-sided pyramid. According to researchers, it is composed of nine layers of packed earth. Even more interesting, there is an underground section below the above-ground pyramid, 
it's just it's literally just a gigantic inverted pyramid of the same size as the one above ground so it's like almost a mirrored image of the pyramid and this makes it in total even larger in size than the great pyramid of giza and the largest underground imperial mausoleum in the world so holy shit oh i just got chills like that's <laughs> just like we we just see like a mound of vegetation and trees on top but there's what will be referred to as the underground palace below it where he's actually yeah. buried it's just insane so the whole mound covers an area of about this means nothing to me but for people that care 49,753 square yards i didn't check how many football fields that was i should have um that's a fuck ton yeah it is that's a great unit of measurement yes it is a fuck ton um (laughs) some people claim and i believe this to be absolutely true it only makes sense some people claim that there are demons and ghosts haunting each of the nine underground layers which if there weren't i would be absolutely shocked shocked so yeah um two things first thing i did the math and you know if we're if we're rounding down it would be about 490 football fields um if i heard your math correctly also you're telling me that there was a people thought there was a possibility this thing wasn't haunted (laughs) (laughs) oh i i don't think anybody's ever questioned that especially when there were like a hundred thousand plus people sealed in the mausoleum with him when he died there's an amount of people that just died and the lives that are ruined just the residual energy in there in general yeah no amount of gold and bronze can protect you from the hauntings that his soul is probably experiencing down there um no but yeah so nine above ground layers nine underground layers all haunted with demons and ghosts and Others guess that the emperor, Xin Shi Huang, uh, built these underground layers in order to let his soul freely wander. So maybe it's like a Prince of Persia thing where he's like doing more Dungeons and Dragons quests in the afterlife. So he's like slaying the ghosts and the demons. He's like rolling D20s down, <laughs> trying to figure out if he can beat them or not, depending on his like HP levels, all that stuff. Oh my god. The true dungeon master over here. Truly, the the OG dungeon master. I just kept envisioning this just like one big video game, but like one from the 80s. I don't know. So yeah, seriously. Kind of like Pac-Man-y a little. Okay, so those are the underground layers and why he built the nine above ground layers is still a mystery. I think it's just for the looks. Seems to me he cared a lot about looks. Um, So... The name of the inverted pyramid tomb where he is buried is referred to as the Underground Palace. It is located under the mound and is in the core of the whole mausoleum area. So two tunnels leading to the underground grave were found in the east and west ends of the mausoleum. In ancient China, imperial tombs usually had four passages in all directions, north, south, east, and west. So there are likely more passages to be discovered. Okay, and that's what we know just from archaeologists, like, doing their thing. And remember how I said that there were, that most written accounts and documents were destroyed in, like, peasant uprisings and fires? Yes. There was one, and as far as I know, this is the only one that exists, but there was one historian, like, long ago, who lived during that time, who kept, who wrote in detail about what the mausoleum looked like. So... 
our boy. His name is Sima <laughs> Chian, and he is giving us yes. the hot goss, like the tour of like the Kardashians of mausoleums. You know what I mean? Like yes. I, hmm, what's a show where they like give you tours of like mansions and stuff? Is there a show like an empty? There's MTV a YouTube stuff? channel called. I mean, it's MTV My Cribs, but there's a YouTube <laughs> channel from our. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just a special episode of Crazy Rich Asians. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, sidebar for just 30 seconds, should you choose to keep this in. I've read that book series and it is excellent. <laughs> Oh, there's a book series? Sorry. Yeah, I am Crazy Crazy Rich Asians is based off of a three-book series, and they're very good. Um, but, no, I think what you're thinking of is Architects, Architecture Digests, which is a magazine. They have a YouTube channel, and they do celebrity house tours. Um, and it's very lovely. It's one of my favorite channels on the internet. But, um, yeah, so AD needs to go in with a bowl of lemons and really spruce up the place and do a little YouTube mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so from his accounts, which they are the only surviving written accounts of the mausoleum's construction, they give us a glimpse as to what it actually looks like on, on inside. Okay. So we learned from him that the tomb inside is absolutely enormous. Nobody's surprised. The coffin of Xin Shi Huang was made of bronze and sits in the center of the chamber. Heaven and earth were represented in the ceiling and floor surrounding him. The ceiling was shaped into the sun, moon, and stars by inlaying thousands of luminous pearls and gemstones into constellations. The earth is depicted by mountains made of bronze, and its waterways are represented by flowing rivers and lakes of mercury. The chamber is brightly lit by whale oil lamps said to burn for all eternity. The tomb was also filled with rare and priceless treasures from all over China, including a golden goose, for some reason, jade artifacts, pearls, and emeralds. And that is just in the burial chamber. There are many more chambers and passageways that we don't know. Like, the contents are a mystery. (sighs) Just insane. It's like a, a literal episode, or like, it's like a literal Indiana Jones movie. It is. No, it literally is. It's literally the Temple of Doom. Which, okay, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but that makes a, an appearance in, like, a paragraph, so just stick with me. And just to explain the River of Mercury thing, like, I'm not going to just, like, breeze past that and expect people to be okay. So, <laughs> the Mercury River, so Mercury was very precious in ancient times and might be a symbol of wealth. And other people guess that Mercury is, again, said to bring immortality, like, his, like, elixir that he drank. And immortality even in the afterlife, which is, again, ironic, since that's probably what killed him in the first place. Hot. So clearly he just, he fucking loved Mercury. I will probably, in my afterlife, I'd like to be buried and surrounded by a river of the green sauce from Cafe Rio that they put on the burritos. Yes, That bitch. would be my choice. <laughs> um, but hey, you know, to each their own. Bluebird Ranch up in this... Love this shit. <laughs> Fucking delicious. Okay. So the emperor knew that his mausoleum was a target for grave robbers. So what you gonna do? What did he do? Two words, bitch. Booby traps. It is said that there are four lines of defense in this mausoleum to deter robbers. 
The first line in legend is sand. The edge of the whole mausoleum is filled with it. Therefore, thieves were not able to dig a hole and enter the inner mausoleum. The second line is made up of hidden crossbows. When the tomb raiders trigger certain devices in the mausoleum, the crossbows hidden in the gate and passageways will shoot from every direction. The third line of defense is essentially a giant pit trap. Once intruders fall into this trap, they can never get out. The fourth line of defense is obviously the rivers of mercury. In legend, it flows in and around the mausoleum, letting off poisonous steam. Anyone who breathes this steam will die. Archaeologists have actually tested several soil samples surrounding, well, that was a lot of S's, several soil samples surrounding the mausoleum, and there is actually really crazy high levels of mercury in all of them. So this is like a very plausible thing. Even if it's not like rivers and lakes of it, it's still like probably as much as he could get his hands on that he buried himself with. Holy shit. So archaeologists are hesitant to excavate the mausoleum for several reasons. One, it is so deeply buried that cave-ins and landslides are likely. Two, the mercury inside the mausoleum is extremely poisonous to people and the environment. Three, present technology lacks the ability to preserve the artifacts inside, so excavating today would mean permanently dam- damaging these priceless relics, which are in perfect condition, likely. And like you've seen that with like the terracotta warriors, like once they're unearthed, they lose their color in a matter of like minutes. Because of all these factors, the mausoleum remains unopened and likely completely undisturbed since Emperor Shinshi Huang's burial over 2,200 years ago. Oh my god. It's We haven't opened it. It's never been opened. We don't know what's in there. Isn't that insane? Can't we just... Can't we just send like a little GoPro down there? <laughs> yeah, just cut a little hole. Yeah, no, for real. They and have, like, this machine that, like, they tried to drill to the center of the earth, right? They got really fucking far down there. Bring that same tool in. It's teeny tiny. I think it's, like, two inches, like, in diameter. Drop a GoPro. See what you can find. Uh-huh. No, I'm Because at some this. point, you're going to hit a tunnel. Put little wheels on it. <laughs> Aw. Man on the moon. My, my vote is... Is that we just send in a team made of, like, Harrison Ford and Nicolas Cage. Harrison <gasps> Ford, for obvious reasons, Indiana Jones, I mean, come on. And Nikki C., obviously, for his extensive career in National Treasure 1 and 2. And there also will be a third one being made soon. So, very excited for that. I mean, talk about an unstoppable team. Mercury can't touch him. No. <laughs> no, fuck Fuck No. But in all honesty, like, I'm on Team Rover with you. Like, they can send a rover to Mars, like, to literal outer space, to, like, a toxic-ass planet, probably more toxic than Mercury, and you can find a way, like, they can find a way to explore this chamber safely without damaging the artifacts. And, like, one thing that I kept picturing was how when astronauts are going into space, there are, like, multiple, like, doorways or, like, fucking hatches or whatever they use to actually get to the outside to maintain the oxygen and the air pressure inside of like the space cabin or whatever and so they can do something like that where they can like build something into the side of the mausoleum with like multiple chambers so that air doesn't get in and air from there doesn't get out like i feel like there are ways to do it okay here's the thing (laughs) if this man put so much effort into 
us not being able to access his tomb mm-hmm. and like he's put in all these physical barriers can you imagine the curses that this D dungeon oh. master has put in this as well oh like, my god you will die you will be haunted your family will have like generational trauma mm-hmm. like it seems to me that if they're gonna do this it has to be robots uh-huh because like they weren't they weren't under the concept of like I have to put a curse on, like, that will affect a robot, you know? Like, I didn't know what the fuck a robot was. I completely <sighs> agree with you, though. Like, you can roll as many nat 20s as possible, but you're not getting out of there without getting your ass cursed or something worse. So I agree like, with you. Like, even if you overcome the mercury poisoning in some capacity, like, you are not overcoming the curses. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that's what happened with King Tut's tomb. When they excavated that, like, a lot of people died from it. So there was, like, the curse of King Tut's tomb. There's actually said to be a curse with the Terracotta army. But, like, there wasn't enough for me to, like, really, really talk about. But most of the farmers that discovered it, like, died. And, but one of them that was alive, like, every time he would go to the museum to sign copies of, like, the books, he would get, like, really sick. And as soon as he stopped going to the museum to sign the books, like, he was completely fine. But his wife was like, I, he would literally would have died if he, like, kept going there. This is what I'm saying. Just, like, ancient shit. As curious as I am, I don't want to be the one that's, like, puts on my, like, repelling harness no. and jumps into the mausoleum. Fuck. Fuck that. No. But I want to know. So, thank you for coming on this fucking journey and geeking out with me. I would love to see the Ter- Terracotta Army one day. Um... And yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That was so fascinating. I like knew a teeny tiny bit about the Terracotta Army enough to know what you were referencing when you started talking about it, mm-hmm. but literally nothing else. That's so yeah. cool. Thank you so much for that, Allison. I appreciate it. Let me hear your story. All right, I'm going to be really honest. I wish that I had gone first because mine is so lame compared to yours. <laughs> like, no, I doubt it. I, it's just like, it's much less like new, like there's like a lot less like going on. It's pretty straightforward and it's more funny than anything else. So I'm here for it. All the saying, everybody who just listened to Allison's really cool story, take your expectations, lower them a little bit. <laughs> Shut up. And get ready. <laughs> All right, Allison. (laughs) As you know, or maybe you don't know, but as you may or may not know, every young, slightly weird child has one of three morbid history story obsessions. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fires, the Anastasia family story, and the sinking of the Titanic. (laughs) Yeah. For me, it was all three of these things, obviously. (laughs) And we wonder why I have a generalized anxiety disorder now. Mm. (laughs) Anyway, I'd actually be very curious to hear what your weird history obsession was as a kid. I have a few. Um, Titanic was definitely one of them, but that was just because I watched a Titanic movie and I, like, it weirded me out. The Egypt, like, Egyptians, King Tut. My brother was really into that when he was little, so I got really into that when I was little. Um... But weird, morbid plane crashes, man. That's like and shark attacks. Like I, that's it. Yeah, that's what I was. That's what I was obsessed with. And 
weird morbid things it's curses you name it i'm here for that i still to this day i have a fucking podcast a little eight-year-old me would just be so excited eating the shit up <laughs> yeah i love it also unlimited nightmares unlimited nightmares but unlimited nightmares <laughs> just so many okay. unlimited mm-hmm. okay so leading in to this weird kid like historical obsession Today, I will be taking you on the very, very ill-conceived journey to discover the wreck of the Titanic and the trials and tribulations of those who wanted to bring her back to the surface. Yes. Oh, I'm so pumped. I like <laughs> barely consider doing this, but I'm glad I didn't because I'm really excited to hear your take on this. <laughs> I just, I love the Titanic, so here we are. Mm-hmm. Um, like the movie? Oh, no, just the whole the whole history of the Titanic. I just find the whole socioeconomic, like, all of it is just so bizarre. Anyway, it's, like, a very good example of, like, Western capitalism, like, at its peak. Yes. Also, Kate Winslet, so. Period. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> My sources are the Wikipedia pages on the Titanic ship, the wreck of the Titanic, and the sinking of the Titanic, which, yes, are all three separate Wikipedia page articles. And they're all very long and in-depth and, like, very much clear that somebody who cares a lot about the Titanic has spent literal days of their lives writing and sourcing. And, like, I usually, like, don't. Like, I usually go, like, off Wikipedia for, like, the majority of my information, but, like, it was so intense and effective on wikipedia so shout out wikipedia i donated after reading all these articles so amazing (laughs) um i also got information from the real story behind the discovery of the titanic from the history channel and the titanic history from britannic britannica you know what i'm talking about and then i also i don't know like they i didn't really get any information from them but i watched several youtube videos of like footage of them discovering the wreck for the first time which was very cool i highly recommend a little Ooh. youtube deep dive because it's like i mean it's like it's 80s videography but it's still really cool to like see them discover this for the first time <sighs> anyway <clears throat> getting into it so i know most of our listeners are likely very familiar with the titanic story but i'll give a brief refresher of the facts for those of you who have only seen the movie aka most people um (laughs) the if you weren't a weird kid who was weirdly obsessed with this why would you know these facts anyway the rms titanic was a passenger liner based out of britain on april 15th 1912 after striking an iceberg during her maiden voyage from southampton uk to new york city the ship sunk in the north atlantic Of the estimated 2,224 passengers and crew aboard, more than 1,500 of them died, making it the deadliest sinking of a single ship during that time period. It remains the deadliest peacetime sinking of a superliner or cruise ship to date. Um, Isn't that crazy? Of, like, a passenger, like, passenger cruise Yeah, because, I mean, like, they've had worse ship deaths from, like, World War II and, like, wars and stuff. Right. But, like, a peacetime ship... Holy shit. Like, death toll. That's It's still to this wow. day the worst one. Knock on um, wood, Jess. I hope you don't jinx somebody here. Well, we just talked about a cursed tomb, so we're really just... <laughs> uh, let's put that tomb on the Titanic, and what do you got? <laughs> death. 
just a, disaster. A lot of mercury poisoning, apparently. Because uh, this was in the height of the, the hat thing when they'd get the mercury hats on the... Yeah, anyway. The Titanic was the largest ship afloat when she began her first and last journey through the ocean. Her captain, Captain Edward Smith, along with her architect, Thomas Andrews, went down with the ship. The ocean liner carried some of the wealthiest people in the world, including the Astors and many other famous families. It also was the shepherds of hundreds of emigrants from Great Britain, Ireland, Scandinavia, and other European countries who were seeking a new life in the United States and Canada. The first-class accommodations were designed to be the end-all, be-all of luxury. First-class tickets came with access to a gymnasium, swimming pool, libraries, high-class restaurants, and opulent cabins. The Titanic came with advanced safety features such as watertight compartments and remotely activated watertight doors, hence its reputation as the unsinkable ship. So, I, like, just want to really quick... We're in 1912 when the ship, like scoots off most people like electricity is like just barely on the scene like she's new to the world and these Mm -hmm. like we're talking like automated wireless communication like automated like anti-sinking methods and like literally like it was the it was the pinnacle of cruise ships like the royal caribbean cruise ships we have now she she set the template okay (laughs) um her mind was in the right place. She was doing her best. She was doing her best. She would have been fine aside from human error, which we'll get into. So the boat was equipped with 16 lifebo- lifeboat davits, each capable of lowering three lifeboats for a total of 48 boats. However, the boat only left with 20 lifeboats on board, four of which were collapsible and proved hard to launch while the boat was sinking. Together, the 20 lifeboats could hold 1,178 people, about half the number of passengers on board, and only one-third of the number of passengers the ship could have carried at full capacity, which at the time was consistent with maritime safety regulations. So, like, they left totally legal to only have this number of lifeboats. And they weren't even, like, the ship, it was her first voyage, so the ship wasn't even at full capacity. They just were, like you know what, it's fine, we'll just go. Because they legally could. It's a man for himself. I know. Yeah, Seriously. So during during her journey, the Titanic received six warnings of sea ice throughout the day of April 14th, but was traveling at about 22 knots when her lookout sighted the iceberg. Unable to turn quickly enough, the ship experienced a blow that buckled her starboard side and opened six of her 16 compartments to the sea. The boat had been designed to stay afloat with four of her forward compartments flooded, but any more than that, it was not happening. So the crew pretty quickly realized that the ship was going to sink, and they used distress flares and radio messages and all that good jazz to attract help as the passengers were put into lifeboats. So this is part of their justification for only having a few lifeboats on board. In accordance with existing practices, the lifeboat system was designed to ferry passengers to a nearby rescue vessel, not to hold everyone on board simultaneously. So they were supposed to be, like, a transition there and back. They were not supposed to be, like, everybody on the ship has to get off the ship as soon as quickly. Like, because usually it takes a long time to sink a ship. Mm -hmm. But the ship was sinking much more rapidly than, like, your average ship sinking. And help was still hours away so there was no safe refuge for many of the passengers and the crew with like the the limited lifeboats they had 
And then on top of this, there was super poor management of the evacuation. Um, So many boats were launched before they were even completely full. There were some boats that were reported to only be a third full when they launched of these 20 boats. So um, the Titanic fully sank with over 1,000 passengers and crew still on board. And almost all of those who jumped or fell into the water drowned or died within minutes due to cold shock and incapacitation. The RMS Carpathia arrived about an hour and a half after the sinking and rescued all of the 710 survivors by 9.15 on the 15th of April, about nine and a half hours after they collided with the iceberg. Um, the disaster obviously shocked the world and caused huge widespread outrage over the lack of lifeboats, the regulations and the fact that all of this was legal and the particularly the unequal treatment of the third class passengers during the evacuation who were literally locked on their third class floor. A lot of them died in their rooms because they couldn't get out. They were not offered any sort of like they weren't even like at some points they weren't even allowed to jump off board and try to make it themselves basically. Um, didn't it, sorry, just, didn't it take, like, four hours for it to sink? Like, how long did it take for it to actually sink? Um, I think start to finish, it was, like, two hours and some, something odd minutes. I don't fully remember completely, but I do know, I'm pretty sure, and this might be a wives tale, but I'm pretty sure that the movie Titanic, part of the reason it's so long, is that James Cameron made from the time the boat hits the iceberg in the movie to the time that the boat sinks is accurate of like how long. Wow. And I could be wrong about that. It says like less than three hours. Yeah. But I feel like that's a, that's like a little like pop culture fact that I feel like I've been told. So if I'm incorrect, but. Okay. Two hours and 40 minutes. So actually that sounds like something James Cameron. Yeah. So that's actually pretty cool. So pretty fast. Further inquiries into the disaster and, like, how poorly it was managed um, brought up, um, brought about, like, recommended sweeping changes to maritime regulations, and it led to the establishment of, like, much more intense safety regulations on passenger vehicle or, like, passenger boats in 1914. So, while it sucked for the people on the Titanic, it did lead to some very, very extreme uh, updated boat practices that now lay the foundation for boat loss today anywho (laughs) that's the sinking of the titanic almost immediately after the titanic sank naturally people began searching for ways to salvage her from the bottom of the ocean even though the exact location and condition of the boat was unknown the families of several wealthy victims of the disaster the guggenheims asters and wideners formed a consortium to and contracted the Merritt and chapman derrick and wrecking company to raise the titanic so their concept was we lost a bunch of lives and we lost a bunch of property in this boat let's bring her back to the surface so we can recover our property you're like water damaged property yes and like i think they also were hoping that they could like rescue bodies but maybe not their best idea which seems to be a theme over the next 72 years it takes to find the titanic so 
<laughs> the project was Got soon it. abandoned as impractical as the divers could not even reach a fraction of the necessary depth where the pressure is over 6,000 pounds per square inch. So they were like, we'll just... They would... Divers? Yeah. They're like, we'll just send some divers down to the bottom of the ocean. Don't worry. Jerry's got his snorkeling equipment. Like, let him find it. Yeah, literally. So the lack of submarine technology at the time, as well as the start of World War I, also did not help the project. The company considered dropping dynamite on the wreck to dislodge bodies, which would float to the surface, but finally gave up after oceanographers suggested that the extreme pressure would have compressed the bodies into, quote, gelatinous lumps end quote i say this with a humorous tone in my voice because it's ap- this concept is absolutely false the bodies were not turned into gelatinous lumps but in 1912 math they thought that they were is it too late to put myself on team dynamite like <laughs> i'm i'm like a little bit here for this <laughs> are you kind of into the concept of blowing bodies out of the water not bodies <laughs> but just the use of dynamite in general use of dynamite in general all right well okay allison's team dynamite we've got several other concepts coming up so you let me know if you want to change teams Heard. so the concept of bodies turning into gelatinous lumps is absolutely false but they would not figure out that bodies under that amount of pressure in cold water um would not turn into lumps until the mid 80s so like this was a concept that people had to deal with for a long ass time so to quote the science writer from wikipedia who clearly spent a lot of time (laughs) on this page i quote the high pressure and low temperature of the water would have prevented significant quantities of gas forming during decomposition preventing the bodies of the titanic victims from rising back to the surface end quote Yeah. Very interesting. Not enough gas for them to float, I guess. So. With enough dynamite. (laughs) With enough dynamite, Allison believes you and the Astors, they really, they're (laughs) into it. it. Um, (laughs) So in the years between World War I and World War II, many other plans were proposed to raise the ship, but all fell apart thanks to practical and technological difficulties, a lack of funding, and in many cases, a lack of understanding of the physical conditions at the wreck site. I'm just going to outline a few of my favorites of these impractical plans, so please sit back and enjoy. So first off, Charles Smith, a Denver architect, proposed in March of 1914 to attach electromagnets to a submarine which would be irresistibly drawn to the wreck's steel hull. Having found its exact position, more electromagnets would be sent down from a fleet of barges which would somehow bring the Titanic back to the surface. It would have cost $35 million in today's money, so they didn't even bother trying it out. (laughs) Magnets? Magnets. And magnets were proposed many times. Magnets was a common thread in these these things, and I would like it to be kept in mind. They don't know where the boat is. (laughs) They have a rough concept of where it is, but they don't even know where on the ocean floor the boat is. Because it's 19-fucking-14. Did you say how deep it sank? I will get there. Okay, heard. Got it. I will get there. But for now, we don't know how deep it is, and we don't know where it is. We just know that it's somewhere in the North Arctic. Magnets, dynamite, check. <laughs> Let's check. Go. So, 
Another idea involved raising Titanic by attaching balloons to her hull using electromagnets. They're back. Once enough balloons had been attached, the ship would float gently to the surface. Again, baseline concept of how like gravity works in water and like how water pressure works would have helped a lot. <laughs> Just send a bunch of circus clowns down there to tie some helium balloons around the rails. Seriously. Don't get it. Seriously. <laughs> It is, it is so, it is so much. Um, and I want to just like quickly do a sidebar. I am like laughing at how ridiculous all of this is. This is in no way me making light of the fact that so many people died in a very classist and preventable event. It's the rich people after the fact trying to like make this boat, make them money that like is so comical yes. to me of like how... Because it stopped being about recovering bodies and recovering loved ones very, very quickly and became, how do we yes. make money yes. off the Titanic? So, um, all right. So later on, after both World Wars were done in the mid-60s, a hosier worker from England named Douglas Woolley devised a plan to find Titanic using a bathyscophy, which I don't know what that is, but it's something, and raise the wreck by inflating nylon balloons that would be attached to her hole. So we're back on the balloon thing in the 60s. This is 50 years after the first balloon proposal did not make it through. We're back to nylon balloons. So his objective was to, quote, bring the wreck into Liverpool and convert it into a floating museum, end quote. In theory phenomenal idea but there's just how you get from a to z i don't feel like yes. he's seeing the big picture and no. to be clear i would have no idea how to do this back then either so no that's the thing is like they have no they're literally just like throwing darts on an idea board and like hoping one sticks and the other thing that's also like difficult about this is that they don't know at the time they didn't know mm. that the titanic had broken in half so they had reports from survivors that the Titanic seemed to have cracked in half, but they were like, that's totally, like, there's no way that this boat would have, like, severed. They probably just, like, thought that the loudness of the boat going into the water, because it's so noisy, mm. would have, they, like, made a, maybe would have mistaken it, all of that. So they thought the boat was, like, in one piece. So in their defense, they're working with the best information that they have. So, um, after they declared their objective to create a floating museum of the Titanic, the Titanic Salvage Company was established to manage the scheme, and a group of businessmen from Berlin set up an entity called a Titanic Tresser to support it financially. The project collapsed when its proponents found they could not overcome the problem of how the balloons would be inflated in the first place. Calculations showed that it could take 10 years to generate enough gas to overcome the water pressure balloons so a variety of other impractical schemes were put forth during the 1970s as well one proposal called for 80 or 180,000 tons of molten wax or alternatively vaseline to be pumped into the titanic to bring her to the surface what wax yeah i listen I'm not a man on cocaine in the 70s coming up with ideas to bring the Titanic to the surface, all right? Ooh, that, were, that, that was these people. Another proposal, and this one's my personal favorite, 
involved filling the Titanic with ping pong balls. But they overlooked the fact that the balls would be crushed by the pressure long before reaching the depths of the wreck. And let me just quickly put a pin in the reminder. They don't know where the boat is. (laughs) That seems like step one to me. So... A similar idea to the ping pong balls involved the use of benthos glass spheres, which they proved could handle the pressure of the ocean floor, but they were it was dismissed because they identified that the cost it would take to create as many spheres as they needed would be $238 million. So, like, no matter how much money you, like, make off of exploiting the Titanic wreck, you're not going to make $238 million back. So... Scratch that idea as well. Then an unemployed haulage contractor from Walsall named Arthur Hickey. (laughs) Already. I'm ready to back him. (laughs) Arthur Hickey proposed to this. His idea is so stupid it would almost work. He proposed to encase the Titanic inside an iceberg. Oh, too soon. So freezing the water. His theory was... To freeze the water around the wreck in a buoyant jacket of ice. And because, as we famously know from every science class ever, ice is less dense than liquid, the Titanic would then float to shore and then you'd melt the ice off of it and you could drag it into Liverpool for the floating museum. So the uh, BOC group calculated that this would require half a million tons of liquid nitrogen to be pumped down to the seabed. Um, and I, I, I mean, the environmental impact of this, the cost, all of the things, it wasn't going to happen. So all of these, all of these wow. ideas, they brought them to investors. Investors said no, Red Heart, and they moved on. Also, just like a now, little bit, a little bit sensitive, a little bit insensitive there with the iceberg. It's, I mean, it's full circle. I'll give him that, but yes, yeah, he was like, all right, you have to become the thing that destroyed you in order to survive. It, can you imagine the ghosts that are just swimming around in that ship, and then they just see a giant iceberg forming around them? The hauntings that would ensue from that in general. That man would have cursed Seriously. himself. <laughs> wow. Yes. So, <laughs> Robert Ballard of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution had long been interested in finding the Titanic, whom amongst us also not interested, you know? However, despite early negotiations with possible backers about being abandoned when it emerged that they wanted to turn the wreck into souvenir paperweights, more sympathetic backers joined Ballard to form a company named Seasonics International Limited as a vehicle for rediscovering and exploring Titanic. So basically... There are two types of backers in the Titanic case. They're the really rich ones that want to make money off of it. And then there are the slightly less rich ones that are in it for, like, the historical discovery. Guess which one wins in the long run. Um, (laughs) So, in October 1977, Ballard made his first attempt to find the ship with the aid of the Alcoa Corporation's deep-sea salvage vessel, Sea Probe. This was essentially, <laughs> there's a lot of very funny names for these little, like, exploratory oh, submarines, okay. so please enjoy. <laughs> so essentially, 
the sea probe was a drill ship with sonar equipment and cameras attached to the end of the drilling pipe. It could lift objects from the seabed using a remote-controlled mechanical claw. The expedition, of course, ended in failure when the drilling pipe broke, sending 3,000 feet of pipe and about $600,000 at the time, which is equivalent to about $2.6 million in today's money um, worth of electronics plunging to the seabed. So these historical backers, probably not thrilled. The Titanic really said, fuck you. Yeah, the Titanic did not want to be found. Come in the water's great. (laughs) Yeah, try it. Try it out. See what happens. See see what happens when you try to encase me in ice. So, <laughs> a few years later, a British billionaire named Sir James Goldsmith, which really like putting it on the nose with these last names, uh, he set up a sea he set up the Seawise and Titanic Salvage Limited Company with the involvement of underwater diving and photographic ep- experts. His aim was to use the publicity of finding Titanic to promote his newly established magazine. Now, an expedition to the North Atlantic was scheduled for 1980, but was canceled due to financial difficulties. A year later, the magazine folded after only 84 issues, and Goldsmith incurred a massive amount of debt due to his failures. Are we noticing a theme of rich people failing? <laughs> sure, which feels nice, by the way. But did he ever consider having in those magazines, like, what type of shipwreck is your relationship? You know, really just mm-hmm. trying to, like, bring it full circle. Like, take this Seriously. quiz now. Like, what type of shipwreck, shipwreck are you? You know, Absolutely. kind of BuzzFeed of its day. I mean, Seventeen Magazine was out here doing it. Why couldn't mm-hmm. you? Mm-hmm. Come on. Why? my favorite i think this one might be my favorite of all of the potential expedition options here is the jack Grimm expeditions of the early 80s so on the 17th of july 1980 an expedition sponsored by a texan oil man jack Grimm set off from Port Everglades, Florida, in the research vessel H.J.W. Fay. Grimm had previously sponsored expeditions to find, hold on to your seats here, Noah's Ark, the Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot, and a giant hole in the North Pole predicted by the pseudoscientific hollow earth hypothesis. (laughs) My favorite thing about this guy is it brings in several of our old episodes. So he did try to yeah. buy the Loch Ness Monster. So put a pin in that. To raise funds for his Titanic expedition, he obtained sponsorship from friends who he played poker with. So, and then he sold meteorites through a the William Morris Agency, commissioned a book, and obtained the services of one Orson Welles to narrate a documentary about it. Oh, my God. He acquired scientific support from Columbia University by donating money to their observatory for the purchase of a wide sweep sonar in exchange for five years of use for of the equipment and the services of technicians to support it. Dr. William Ryan from Columbia University and Dr. Fred Spice from Scripps Institution of Oceanography joined the expedition as consultants. They nearly decided to not participate when Grimm introduced them to a new consultant. And when you guess who this consultant is, you are wrong. (laughs) This consultant was a monkey called Titan, who was trained to point at a spot on the map to supposedly indicate where the Titanic was, which 
you know what? The monkey knows about as much as all the humans on shore do. So not maybe not his most ill-conceived idea. <laughs> the scientists involved issue an ultimatum. Quote, it's either us or the monkey. End quote. <laughs> oh my god, no. Rim preferred the monkey, but was pressured into leaving it behind and taking the scientists instead. How did the monkey even make his way? They, they <laughs> like consulting a psychic would have made more sense. I don't know. But after these people left and went on their little journey to try and find the Titanic, <laughs> the results were inconclusive. <laughs> it's just like curious George's nine to five. <laughs> This monkey titan was like, listen, they give me healthcare benefits. What do you want from me? I get dental, bro. The man, the man in the yellow hat is a government employee. All right. What do you want from me? I'm oh, doing Jesus. my best to make sure I get good healthcare. Insane. So the results of their expedition was, were inconclusive. Um, after three weeks of surveying and almost continuous bad weather during July and August of 1980, they failed to find the Titanic, which, again, the Titanic does not want to be found very clearly here. They were like, you are not in this for the right reasons. You are not finding me. So um, the problem with finding it was also exacerbated by technological limitations. The sonar used by the expedition had relatively low resolution and was new and un- was a new and untested piece of equipment. It nearly lost only it was nearly lost after only 36 hours of using it. When the tail was ripped off during a sharp turn, destroying the magnetometer again with magnets, Jesus Christ, which would have been vital for detecting the Titanic's hole. Nonetheless, it managed to survey an area of some 500 square nautical miles um, and identified 14 possible targets. The documentary of this expedition featuring Orson Welles was titled Search for the Titanic and can be viewed on a streaming service near you. Also, for those who don't remember, Orson Welles was one was the one that narrated the War of the Worlds broadcast that I covered in one of the previous episodes. So yes. really is full circle. We are really coming in full circle on this. So Grimm, talented Texan oil Texas oil man that he is, mounted a second expedition in June a year later, aboard the research vessel Geyer, with Spice and Ryan again joining the expedition, despite the monkey debacle of the last expedition. <laughs> To increase their chances of finding the wreck, the team employed a much, much more capable sonar device, the Scripps Deep Toe. The weather was again very bad, but all 14 of the targets were successfully covered and found to be natural features. On the last day of the expedition, an object that looked like a propeller was found. Grimm announced on his return to Boston that Titanic had been found, but the scientists declined to endorse his claims. The monkey thing was too far. (laughs) So, two years later, Grimm went back for a third time with just Ryan aboard the research vessel, Robert D. Conrad. Nothing was found, and bad weather brought an early end to the expedition. The sea mark passed over Titanic, but had failed to detect it, while Deep Toe passed within one and a half nautical miles of the wreck. So they got really close. Still no dice. Titanic said, "Uh -uh. uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. I just picture it kind of like... Just driving itself along the seafloor to avoid everybody above it's it. Like, it's like, it's like skirts off to the left, <laughs> skirts off to the right. Two hops this time. <laughs> Slide to the left. 
<laughs> oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> so, finally. <clears throat> okay. So, Michael Harris and Jack Grimm had both failed to find the Titanic. However, their expeditions did succeed in producing a fairly detailed mapping of the area in which the ship had sunk. So, their efforts and the monkey, not completely a waste. It was clear that the position given in the Titanic's distress signals were inaccurate, which was a major expedition difficulty because it increased the search area's already massive size. Um, so despite the failure of his 1977 expedition, Robert Ballard had not given up hope and devised new technologies and a new search strategy to tackle the problem. The new technology was a system called Argo Jason. This consisted of a remotely controlled deep sea vehicle called Argo, equipped with sonar and cameras and towed behind a ship with a robot called Jason tethered to it that could roam the sea floor, take close up images and gather specimens. Sorry, the robot Argo and Jason. Jason. <laughs> um, and a monkey titan. Wow. And a monkey titan. A There's a lot happening. Um, the images from the system would be transmitted back to a control room on the towing vessel where they could be assessed immediately. Although it was designed for scientific purposes, it also had important military applications. And the United States Navy agreed to sponsor the system's development on the condition that it would be used to carry out a number of programs many of which are still classified for the Navy. Ooh. So the boy got smart. The boy got smart and he was like, we're going to the U.S. government. Okay. Okay. So the Navy, now involved, had Ballard and his team carry out a month-long expedition every year for four years to keep Argo and Jason in good working condition. Had to keep those boys warmed up. Um... The Navy agreed to Ballard's proposal to use some of the time to search for the Titanic once the Navy's objectives had been met. The search would provide an ideal opportunity to test Argo and Jason. So, the Navy was in. In 1984, the Navy sent Ballard and Argo to map wrecks of sunken nuclear submarines lost in the North Atlantic at depths of up to 9,800 feet. So, they had a better idea of where these ships were, or where these submarines were, so they could test this out, but also, like, Finding a nuclear ship or nuclear submarines feels a little bit like trying to go into a tomb with mercury, but that's just me. Love playing with fire. Anyway. I know, right? So the expedition found the submarines and made an important discovery. As Thresher and Scorpion sank, which those were the submarine names, Thresher, debris spilled out from them across a wide area of the seabed and was sorted by the currents. So the light debris drifted furthest away from the site of the sinking. This, quote, debris field was much, much larger than the wrecks themselves. By following the trail of debris, the main pieces of the wreckage could be found. So basically, we're playing breadcrumbs with these shipwrecks, or these, I guess, submarine wrecks is a better, better way to put it. A second expedition to map the wreck of Scorpion was mounted in 1985. Only 12 days of search time would be left at the end of the expedition to go look for the Titanic. Because their deal was, you got to go look for the Navy stuff first. Whatever time you have left, you can go do this other shit, right? So as... (laughs) That's what they called it officially in government documents. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So um, where previous expeditions like Harrison Grimm's were um, that were unsuccessful had taken more than 40 days Ballard decided that extra help would be needed to accomplish his in the 12 days he approached the French National Oceanographic 
agency, I F R E M E R. Sure. <laughs> I Fremer, as we will call it from go- going nice. forward. Um, which Woods Hole had previously collaborated. The agency had recently developed a high-resolution side-scan sonar called SAR and agreed to send a search vessel vessel to survey the seabed in the area where the Titanic was believed to lie. So naturally, as all good Americans do, they brought in the French to figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) So the idea was for the French to use the sonar to find likely targets and then for the Americans to use Argo to check out the targets and hopefully confirm whether they were in fact the wreck. Um, the French team was able to spend five weeks, uh, in the summer of July, uh, 1985, mowing the lawn is what they called it, sailing back and forth across 150 square nautical miles, um, to scan the seabed in a series of stripes. However, they found nothing, though it turned out they had passed within a few hundred yards of Titanic on their very first run. Slide to the left, girl. I'm telling you. Yep. (laughs) She didn't want to be found. I'm telling you. No, she's a little embarrassed. I know. She's shy. She's, shy. <laughs> she's a little shy. <laughs> she's like, listen, I'm not looking my best anymore. I don't want you to look it's at like, me. You guys, I am not on my prime. <laughs> I wish you could see me with all my intact compartments. Yeah, seriously. So Ballard then realized that looking for the wreck with, like, looking for the wreck itself with sonar was not going to work. However, because of his Navy experience, he now knew that there was likely a shit ton of trash or like just debris creating a breadcrumb trail to the site. So he was like, we're not going to look for the ship anymore. We're just going to look for the shit that would be around the ship. So finally, after a week of fruitless searching at 12.4 or excuse me, at 1248 a.m. on Sunday, September 1st, 1985, pieces of debris began to appear on Norse screens. One of them was identified as a boiler, identical to those shown in pictures from 1911. The following day, the main part of the wreck was found, and Argo sent back the first pictures of the Titanic since her sinking 73 years before. Oh my god. So, he found the trash, he followed it, and it worked. What year was this? This was in 1985. 85. Oh my gosh. Yeah. September 1st. Yeah. So 73, 73 years after the sinking. Oh, that's awesome. They discovered that the wreck lies at a depth of about 12,500 feet and about 370 nautical miles south-southeast of the coast of Newfoundland. It lies in two main pieces about 2,000 feet apart. The bow is still recognizable with many preserved interiors despite deterioration and damage sustained hitting the seafloor in contrast the stern is completely ruined a debris filled around the wreck contains hundreds of thousands of items spilled from the ship as she sank the bodies of the passenger and crew would have also been distributed across the seabed but have been consumed by other organisms so there's not even like skeletons locked in like the third class chambers no it's all been consumed by bacteria holy shit even the bones wow i would assume there'd be something left like a skull like i don't know if there is they haven't been able to access it because it's in sealed compartments and there's only so much that like the robots can do sure so but like anything that's accessible there's no um there's like no food there's no unless it was like sealed or in like a non-organic material um it's not there anymore so um after this there have been several other journeys that are pretty famous 
um, between the 25th of July and the 10th of September 1987, an expedition mounted by the same French group that helped with the initial scans um, and a consortium of American investors that included George Tullock, Michael Harris, and um, Ralph White made 32 dives to Titanic using the submersive um, nautile. Um, controversially, they salvaged and brought ashore more than 1,800 objects. Um, the French group I. Fremer and RMS Titanic Incorporated, the successors to the sponsors of the 1987 exhibit, um, expedition, returned to the wreck with the ROV Robin in June of 1993. Over the course of 15 days, they made 15 dives lasting, lasting between 8 and 12 hours each, which is a crazy amount of time to be at the bottom of the ocean. Like, isn't that insane? That did, they didn't use real divers. They had to use robots, right? Yeah. So basically what they do. Like and submarines? Like, they show this, like, what they show in the Titanic movie is, like, very much, like, what it looks like because James Cameron did it, which we'll get into in a second. But they basically go down in the submarine as far as they can go, like, and be safe with the water pressure. And it's, like, this teeny tiny submarine. It's super thick. I think they're the glass on, like, the teeny tiny portholes are, like, 12 inches. It's basically, like a spaceship but for the water and then your worst they nightmare. have okay. yeah literally my worst nightmare um and then they have a robot that is attached to that that then goes and like has cameras on it that they're able to like go see things and it's got like the little arms oh, that you see him control so in the movie cool. and like all this stuff so they have like varying versions of that so this the french group has gone down several times and they've, they're the ones that have collected the thousands upon thousands of artifacts that are now in museums um, using these little robots that then bring them back. So um, during this 1993 expedition, they recovered another 800 artifacts, uh, including two-tone piece of reciprocating engine, a lifeboat davit, and a steam whistle from the ship's forward funnel. So over the course of the next 10 years, RMS Titanic Inc. carried out in an intensive series of dives that led to the recover of over recovery of over 4,000 items in the two first in the first two expeditions alone. I'm now doing the thing where I'm getting too excited and I'm talking too fast like you mm-hmm, were. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's just so cool. And also so fucked up. <laughs> so uh, in 1996, what the uh, mm, in 1996, one of their expeditions controversially attempted to raise a section of the Titanic itself. Again, back with the balloons, kind of. Um, so there was a section of the outer hole that had originally comprised part of the wall of the first two first-class cabins on the sea deck, extending down to the D deck. It weighed 20 tons and measured 15 by 25 feet and had four portholes in it, three of which still had glass in them. The section had come loose either during the sinking or as a result of the impact with the seabed. Its recovery using diesel-filled flotation bags was, again, they really are like, any way we can use a balloon, we're going to find a way. So Absolutely. They turned it into an entertainment event. So they told all of these rich investors, they were like, hey, we're going to raise a piece of the Titanic. Come. And they had two cruise ships and it was $5,000 per person. And they had like Las Vegas style, like, um, gambling, entertainment, all of these things. They like basically turned this into this crazy, crazy like entertainment piece for famous people. They had Burt Reynolds, Debbie Reynolds, and Buzz Aldrin like scheduled to come, like be part of the entertainment on this boat while they raised a piece of the Titanic. Like it is so fucked. Um, so naturally, 
The lift ended disastrously when rough weather caused the rope supporting the bags to snap. The Titanic said, we're not fucking with this bullshit. Um, the moment the ropes broke, the whole section uh, had only been lifted within 200 feet of the surface. So they got really, really close when the um, ropes broke. So it was it like the whole front of it? No, it was like a 25 by 15 like piece of the sidewall that had come detached. Um they that were they were so close. Yeah, they literally it hurtled twelve thousand feet back down and embedded itself upright on the seafloor. The attempt was strongly criticized by marine archaeologists, scientists, and historians as a money making yeah. publicity stunt. Several publications not compared, to be that sorry, not to be that archaeologist, but they are ruining the archaeological context by yes. doing that. They're ruining yes. the archaeological context. It's, yes, uh, it's um, fuck, okay. Several publications compared the event to grave robbing, and Ballard called the event a carnival and stated that we tried to put it to rest, but this perpetuates the tragedy, end quote. Um, A second successful attempt to lift the fragment was carried out in 1998. The so-called big piece was conserved in a laboratory in Santa Fe for two years before being put on display at the Luxor Las Vegas Hotel and and Casino. (sighs) Okay, but what they're forgetting is at this point there are still survivors. Yeah. Of the Titanic. Yeah. A, a survivor, uh, the son of one of the survivors has been down to, like, of the 140 people that have been down to the site, one of the survivor's sons have, has been down there. Like, people are were still alive up until two years ago from the Titanic. Yeah, like, one was, like, a, she was, like, a baby, right? Yeah, she was like, a baby. On the Titanic. Mm-hmm. So, it's, yeah. it's crazy they'd be doing something that like, insensitive. Yeah. While there are still survivors. Like, it's not, like... Even if they did something like that with the Terracotta Warriors, but, like, there's not people that are, like, directly knowing, like, that lived at that time. Like, I or my father died making this. Like, that's risky. Like, what they're doing, that's – it's a little too soon. I don't know. I know. Isn't that crazy? Like, absolutely crazy. But they have a piece of it? I'm going to look it up. Now I'm curious. Yeah. Sitting in a casino in Las Vegas. So, um, in 1995, director James Cameron – um, chartered his own set of dive ships to make 12 dive, dives to the Titanic. He used the foot, footage in his blockbuster 1997 film, Titanic. The discovery of the wreck and a National Geographic documentary of Ballard's 1986 expedition had inspired him to write a synopsis in 1987 of what eventually became the film. Quote, do story with bookends of present day each scene of wreck using submersibles intercut with memories of a survivor and a recreated scene of the night of the sinking, a crucible of human values under stress, end quote. So they've had many, many other dives um, since then. In 2000, they went down 28 times and got more artifacts, including the ship's engine telegraphs, perfume vials, and watertight door gears. Um, And then in 2001, and I'm so sorry, I know that this is getting so long, so you can cut out whatever this is. No, no, no. But... Um, and this is so unhinged. In 2001, an American couple, David Leibowitz and Kimberly Miller, caused controversy when they were married aboard a submersible that had set down on the bow of the Titanic in a deliberate echo of a famous scene from the Titanic movie. They did not. It's, like, not funny, but it's so, like, absolutely ridiculous. Yes. Jeff, so, I'm flying. Literally, the wedding was a publicity stunt sponsored by a British company who had offered a free dive 
um, to the Titanic and like as like a competition and Leibowitz had won and he asked them like hey can I bring my girlfriend or like can I bring my fiance and they were like yes only if you guys agree to get married like while you're down there they better never get divorced they like I know seriously um they also brought along Philip Littlejohn, who was a grandson of one of the Titanic's surviving crew members, and he became the first relative of the Titanic passenger, uh, or of a Titanic passenger to visit the site. And then uh, James Cameron has also returned a couple of times to finish out, like, Walt Disney documentary stuff that he's been hired for. But, like... Is that not so? They, like, are willing to bring, a, like, somebody who's related to one of the people that, like, died on it, but they're also willing to, like, force people to get married on it. So, luckily, as shitty as all of this is, finally, in April of 2012, 100 years after the disaster and nearly 25 since they discovered the wreck of the Titanic, the Titanic became eligible for protection under the 2001 UNESCO Convention on the Protection of Underwater Cultural Heritage. In the same month, Robert Ballard, who was the person who found the Titanic, um, pledged to do his best to um, preserve the wreck of the Titanic by using deep-sea robots to paint the wreck with anti-fouling paint to help keep the wreck in its current state for all time. Thus far, he has not done it, but his goal was basically to make the Titanic look like it did when he discovered it in 1985 and keep it that way. Because, I mean, like, it's under the water. It's got, like, all this stuff that they refer to as, like, rusticles, which are icicles made of rust. (laughs) Exactly what they sound like. Um, But it is now eligible to be protected. I don't think it has been protected yet, but it is eligible. So as soon as some rich people get their shit together... Um, but right now it's owned by people who make money off of it as a tourism scheme. So, um, so it's, did they never have, they're not going to like remove it. They're not going to try to remove it again. No, at this point it's too fragile to bring it to the surface. Wow. I am so glad you did this. I knew nothing about like any of this. It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Um, I have like a bunch of interesting facts about like how, like how the ship looks now that it's under um under the water but um they have found like full blown like it's like crazy how well it's preserved so um they there's like they found like hanging electrical wire light fixtures um brass bed frames and like marble tops like all a lot of the wood has been completely destroyed but like anything that the wood was supporting so like they found like marble tabletops um and, like, doorknobs, door poles, and then, like, anything that's, like, made out of, like, harder woods, like, mahogany are still okay. And then they, like, have found full tiled rooms. They found, um, like, crystal lamps and, like, a lot of the decor work around the grand staircase that's, like, featured in the movie The Titanic mm-hmm. is not there anymore because it got destroyed and, like, as the ship cracked in half. But, like, all of the decor around it is still very much um, wow. there. So the debris field that we mentioned earlier is um, about 26,000 feet long and it trails, like, in all directions. It's basically just this massive circle of debris. 
And it consists of thousands of objects from the interior of the ship, ranging from tons of coal spilled from the ruptured bunkers, or excuse me, bunkers. Um, and there's also suitcases, clothes, corked wine bottles that are still intact. Um, oh bathtubs, God. windows, wash basins, jugs, bowls, hand mirrors, and like tons of personal artifacts. And it also includes numerous pieces of the ship itself, which was with the largest pieces of debris in the vicinity of the partially disintegrated stern section. So while the discovery of the Titanic wreck has been met with controversy at every, every turn, it's very clear that the Titanic did not want to be found by like money, money grabbers, which is why I think Ballard was allowed to find it by whatever universe entity it was, because he was truly doing it for the history side of it. The Titanic's, like, the interest in the Titanic is a historical and technological marker in deep sea research. So, like, a lot of the sonar cameras and, like, military advancements that we've made with, like, deep sea dives are because people wanted to find the fucking Titanic. Oh, my God. Um, And, like, the tools and equipment needed to pull off the discovery are still being used all over the world today and have provided um, more discovery beyond the bounds of the RMS Titanic. And, you know, I I really hope that at some point they actually are able to push the company that claims they own the Titanic to um, protect it more aggressively than it is. But it still is like a such like such a cool piece of history. And like I said at the beginning of, of my story, like the Titanic is a cultural classism marker for like Western culture and even like the wreck discovery itself is also like echoes that mm-hmm. historically i don't know it's just so it's just so interesting um no booby traps but still some cool stuff no i am fascinated by that that i am so glad you covered this i had no idea how insane the search for the titanic actually was the balloons the dynamite i had yeah. no idea and I, like, cut out some of, like, the stupider ones that, like, weren't funny. They were just, like, dumb. So it was just, like, people were were just hanging out saying, all right, how many balloons can we tie to the Titanic to bring her to the surface? So that's the other thing is, like, when they went down and discovered it, that it was broken in half, they were, like, well, fuck. Like, we've been looking for one boat and, like, turns out this whole time it's, like, been in half and, like not what they expected turns out that the people that witnessed the thing were actually telling the fucking truth <laughs> i hate it when people don't believe survivors like no we saw it snap in half it's like yeah anyway yeah so anyway that is the discovery of the wreck of the titanic and all of the weirdos who had too much money and time to try and go find her amazing i loved that thank you that was a delight you're so welcome truly it was truly fascinating all the way around so i'm gonna be i want to watch the titanic again you should minus the part where he spits loogies but yeah skip that part it's shot like a horror film it's shot like a oh yeah from the moment it hits the iceberg he shot it like a horror film the next time you watch it like pay attention like it is shot like a horror movie like the way the scenes transition. Like, like a suspense. And- yeah, the way the scenes, the transition, like the suspension of disbelief, like it is shot like a horror wow. film. And the monster is the water. 
Oh my god, I need to rewatch this. That's yeah. so fascinating. Yeah. Thank you. Wow. I might I might watch it tonight. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. It's like three and a half hours long. <laughs> Listen, but you could watch to like where it gets sad and then be done for the night. And then tomorrow in the light of day, you could watch the story. I'll probably just watch it all tomorrow night. I, I had like three different people tell me in the last two days to watch 13 lives on Amazon Prime. So I actually I might watch that tonight. Yeah, it's it's about the the kids. They're like thirteen kids. I don't want. I want to say maybe in Thailand or something. They were like soccer players. They got trapped in a cave. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And it's the story of getting all of them out safely. So I had three different people be like, "You need to watch this." And so I'm gonna actually probably watch that tonight. I'm definitely gonna watch The Bachelorette, but um, maybe this weekend. <sighs> Can't wait. Well, let me know. Well, anyway. Wow, this was a very fun and very interesting episode. Yes. I hope everybody enjoyed it as much as we did. Yes. Uh, thanks for thanks for listening to us as we get really excited and talk too fast. We think it's mm-hmm. so fun and mm-hmm. we think it's so exciting. So mm-hmm. next week oh, yeah. we will be back with a, another episode of 321Shots. And uh, Allison, thanks for joining me. It's been a delight. Of course. My pleasure. I will talk to you soon, I'm sure. Maybe. Cool. Very we'll fun. Find out. We'll s- <laughs> yeah, we'll see all you guys later. All right. Bye. Okay, bye.